0: I do think that tonight's word will be not a sequel to tend your garden. You remember that message we did last month um, that we've already put up and has gotten some really positive response from people who are being prompted by the spirit to tend their own garden, but who are also being prompted by the spirit to get back into a garden. And I know you know what I mean, not just allegorically, not out there with vegetables, but in the body of Christ somewhere, people who have a little bit of that religious PTSD, a little bit of scared, a little bit, a little tentative, don't want to get back into that, but they're feeling that pull. I even heard from a man who said that, um, was the word I needed in the hour. I didn't know that's what the Holy Spirit's been saying to me, uh, to really start to look for that spot to plant. So, um, I think that's a, a theme that's reaching a lot of people who, who have shared the journeys that, A lot of us have shared which is maybe coming out of traditional environments of church but not coming out of the church I've I've never been a bigger fan of the Church of Jesus Christ in my life Um, I love the body of Christ because it's earthly expression of our Heavenly Father it doesn't always look pretty we do a lot of stupid things we're not we're not perfect we get a lot of stuff wrong but the beauty is, is that we have a father so radically in love with us that we're like his. We're like a bunch of kids that are trying to do the right thing for a dad that loves them, and you just love watching your kids, even when they do stupid stuff. You go, well, that one's mine. Yeah, he's acting like an idiot, but you know, look at. It. You know, I got a feeling sometimes that's what the father says. It's like, yeah, she's acting stupid right now, but look at her. You know, and and I, I, I that helps me to to deal with my own mistakes, I guess you could say, and the the places where I slip is to say, the Father's so in love with us. He's not cutting us off. He just continues to renew us. So I want to take us on a little bit of a, again, not really a sequel, but a message that I think does build off of the idea of the garden motif. Because once again, I see so much of this. In fact, I was out in prayer this morning and really just had sort of a, a... a renewal in my own spirit of, of how the Bible has... There's several ways to give that overarching theme of the Bible. You can do a lot of allegories. In my latest book, we did, I did one of the river. that I think there's a river of God's love that flows through the Bible. And I, and, but there's more. I think one of them that's been very powerful for me lately is the image of the garden. And when you think about the garden is that God starts this whole story in a garden. He puts man in it. Man's first, not the garden's not first, man's first. Because you're first. Structures are not first. Organisms and organizations are not first. You're first. And then he lets stuff build around you. because so he doesn't have this thing and then has to fill it with people, to like to prop it up. That's what burns a lot of us out, is we got stuff, and then we got to cram a bunch of people and throw money at it, and you gotta prop it up, keep it going, way after its usefulness. How many of you know something should just pass away? like some things are done. And so, but we have trouble with that. Okay. But if we go back to our beginning of our story, he creates you and then he gives you a house. Then he gives you a garden because you got to have purpose. You got to have meaning. And so he puts you in a garden. He goes, now take care of this. This is yours. Okay. Well, it doesn't take long. We really mess that thing up. Right. Because that's our story is that we mess stuff up. All right. And I'm, I mean, I'm, I'm in a very real human way, if you put us into a situation, you give us carte blanche, go do what you do, that baby's going to burn down. I mean, it's just a matter of time. And so the biblical story is the thorns that grow in the garden and the thistles and the problems and the rocks that are in the soil and everything's hell before long. And we can't even live there anymore. And so the whole Bible is a wilderness experience. And then here comes Jesus. Smack dab into the middle of that wilderness. And deposits into this th- overgrown, chaotic former garden that we're now going to call a wilderness. He deposits His Father. He puts the love of the kingdom of God and drops it down into the soil. This is kind of along the same lines that we were talking last month. And as you watch, the whole resurrection story is then... He is recreating his garden and populating it with brand new Adam and Eve's. And, and what I mean by that is redeemed people who've entered into the death of Christ and come through that into our resurrection reality. And he's populating it with pieces of himself because that's what Adam and Eve were. It was just God, piece of himself. And that's what the church is. Pieces of him. We participate In that every time we take communion. Body, blood, pieces of him. And we snatch it up because it's pieces of him inside of pieces of him. And so him for us, me for him, and we participate. We really do participate. He builds the church. We participate in it. We're part of it. We're tending gardens. And so of all the motifs you can give about Uh, lambs and lions and shepherds and warriors and generals and kings and priests and all of them apply in one way or the other to Jesus. My favorite is she saw a man and supposing him to be the gardener said unto him, where have you taken his body? And never is a more perfect revelation of who resurrected Jesus is than supposing him to be a gardener because guess what he is? He's a gardener and he is fashioning his church in an image that is beautiful to his father. Now, what I want to do tonight is I want to take you to Jeremiah 31, and I want to walk you through what I think is a microcosm chapter of this thing that we're talking about right here. I I wasn't just rambling there. That wasn't just like building off of something. That was actually to lay this framework for what I, I want to try to accomplish in the next few minutes. And that is not to read all of Jeremiah 31, but it is to read a few little segments of Jeremiah 31 to show you that I believe that God is doing a work in us now that was prophesied in Jeremiah 31. It comes through Jesus, and it is still active in the earth today. So from the top of the chapter to the bottom of the chapter, we're going to take a little journey. And I think it is, in a way, a garden and microcosm. And I want to take care of one point of order before we read. And that is this, whenever you read the Bible from a New Testament perspective, it is very important that you settle in your heart. I'm going slow here because I think this is a very crucial moment in this sermon, okay? It is very important that you settle in your heart what the New Testament means by Israel. Because if you don't settle that, All you're left with is what the Old Testament means by Israel or what the world means today by Israel. Those are three different things. The Old Testament world of Israel is a nation of people connected by bloodline, circumcision, and legal code. They do not necessarily have a permanent home. They do for a little slice of the Old Testament. But for most of the Old Testament, they don't have a property. They are a nomadic people who are connected by bloodline heritage, genealogy, and legal code. They build a religion around their legal code called Judaism. Judaism is not near as old as Israel. Israel comes from the new name for Jacob, a type of the transformed man. Jacob means cheater. Israel is he who contends with God and is crowned, sort of princely. So the contention with God permeates the Old Testament. That's Israel. Skip the New Testament one, go to today. Today, Israel is full of Israelis, not Israelites. The Old Testament is full of Israelites, nomadic people who link themselves through genealogy, bloodline, and religion back to Abraham and his family Today, Israelis are people who live in a nation called Israel. was established by the United Nations in 1948. Not everybody in Israel is an Israeli. But if you have Israeli citizenship, it means you belong to a geographical spot on the globe. That's today. New Testament. From a New Testament perspective, whenever Israel gets talked about, our key right here is Paul. Paul gets to the end of his letter to Galatians, and he says, he greets, the he waves goodbye, actually. At the end of Galatians 6, he's saying goodbye, and he waves goodbye to the Israel of God. An interesting statement. The Israel of God. And he only says that because he just established new parameters for Israel in the book of Galatians. Because in the book of Galatians, he said, God did not make a promise to seeds. God made a promise to seed, singular. And the seed is Christ. So God made a promise to Christ, not to a bunch of Israelites. This is Paul's argument. And he said, any man who puts faith in Christ is Abraham's seed. In other words, any man who comes in through Jesus... Belongs in the family of Abraham. What was the family of Abraham called? Israel. So when you get to Galatians 6, Paul goes, Greetings, Israel of God. Who's the Israel of God? Anyone who's put faith in Christ. So what's the New Testament definition of Israel? Anyone who puts faith in Christ. Right? Christianity started as a religion with a bunch of Jewish people who had found their Messiah. And they had found him by looking at the prophetic word of the Old Testament, and they saw him fulfilled in Jesus. Okay, Why do we need to do all? That was, that was a five-minute point of order. Well, uh, here's why. Because if you're not careful, you'll read scriptures that say, I'm going to do this to Israel, and you'll think, God's going to do that to that nation over there. And you'll ignore the hermeneutic key of the Apostle Paul going, any man who puts faith in Christ is Abraham's seed. And here's the danger of doing that. If you double down on that, the new covenant's not for you. Because in Hebrews chapter 8, he says, I'm going to make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. And then he defines the new covenant. And if for you, Israel is just a nation on the other side of the globe, that new covenant's not with you. That new covenant's with them. Or it's with them way back there, someday in a restored future. So guess what you don't have? A new covenant. And if you don't have a new covenant, quit taking communion because Jesus said, This is the new covenant broken for you. Okay. That's why a five minute point of order is necessary because then you can say, okay, I will concede that from a new Testament lens, Paul believes how you get into Israel is not by crossing over a border or by circumcision or by bloodline or by Judaism, but by coming in through Christ. And if that's the case, then we can talk about new covenant and we can talk about communion and we can talk about anything else all the way up to new Jerusalem. Because then it's no longer a piece of property on the planet. It's a people in Christ. All right. Was that a good enough intro? It was a lot of stuff, right? How are we going to do anything out of Jeremiah 31? You needed all of that. Here's why. Jeremiah chapter 31, verse 1. At that time says the Lord, I will be God of all the families of Israel, and they shall be my people. Thus says the Lord. The people who survived the sword found grace in the wilderness when Israel sought for rest. The Lord appeared to him from far away. I have loved you with an everlasting love, and therefore I have continued my faithfulness to you. I want to title this tonight from the middle of verse two, or the end of verse two rather, Grace in the Wilderness. I love that phrase. That has been on fire in me this week. Grace in the Wilderness. A wilderness is a overgrown or undergrown, famine or drought stricken, full of rocks, full of thorns. No one plants a garden in a wilderness. It might have used to have been a garden, but it's not a garden any longer. And you're going to go through one. Practically, Israel is in one. They're in Babylonian captivity. Jeremiah says, those of you who survived the sword that was the attack of the Babylonians, shall now have grace in your wilderness. God hasn't forgotten you. You survived one stage not so that you could be slaughtered in the next stage. You survived so that grace could enter your wilderness. Here's what grace in your wilderness actually looks like. It was verse 3. The Lord appeared to him from far away. I have loved you with an everlasting love. So grace in the wilderness always starts with everlasting love. I love you in spite of the wilderness. I love you in spite of your famine. I love you in sp- Don't look at the famine as me judging you. Don't look at the drought as me having left you. Don't look at your problems as evidence that I'm not with you. No. I am giving you grace in the middle of your wilderness and it starts with love. And that needs repeated over and over and over because you're going to go through wildernesses. So when you come into the house of God, what do you need to hear? He loves you with an everlasting love. Yeah, but you don't know what kind of week I had. Oh, then he really loves you with an everlasting love. Yeah, but I really messed up. Oh, praise God. Then he really loves you with an everlasting Because the more the wilderness, the more the grace. Paul would change the wording and say, where an in iniquity doth abound, grace doth much more abound. It's kind of Paul saying, if you're in a bad spot, here's one thing you can be sure of, grace goes in there with you. What's it look like? Everlasting love. I can't love you less. I can't love you more. I love you so much that I walk into your wilderness. David said it this way. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, thou art with me. Thy rod and thy staff, they comfort me. They don't beat me to death. That's what we would do with a rod and a staff, if somebody wandered off the beaten path. We beat them to death. And that's what gets us cut down in church if we don't do. You go down there, they, they won't put the rod of God on you. And go No, why would I put the rod of God on you? You're in a wilderness. You don't need beat up. You need picked up. You got a bad week, you need to hear about the love of God. You don't need to hear about what's wrong with you. You need to hear about what's right with Jesus. My God, you know what's wrong with you. How dense are we that we don't know what's wrong with us? We know what's wrong with us. We don't know what's right with God. So he goes, you're in the wilderness, grace. What's it look like? Everlasting love. Now I want to challenge you on your own time, slow walk through Jeremiah 31. Don't do it tonight. Just, well, do it maybe later, but don't do it right now. (laughs) Slow walk through Jeremiah 31 and watch God talk to a people he's wooing back. You survived the sword wandering in the wilderness. And what you're going to find, I think, is what I'm going to try to highlight for you tonight, is that I think it's a microcosm of where God wants to take all of us wilderness dwellers. That whenever we find ourselves in a dry spot, a famine spot, a thorny spot, a rocky spot, a spot away from what feels like the heart of God, and we'll find those moments. Whenever we find ourselves there, we'll lean towards God's grace, know that He everlasting loves us, and that this is not the end of the story. So you can look around at your garden and it's just trash. There's weeds everywhere, there's rocks everywhere. Nothing's going to grow in here. This isn't a garden. But as you sprinkle grace, and before we're done, I want to show you what does it look like when God actually drops grace into the ground? What happens in that space? And I think Jeremiah 31 kind of helps to reveal that. So the chapter actually progresses. Wilderness and exile. By the time you get down to verse 15, here's a familiar verse. Thus says the Lord, a voice is heard in Ramah, Lamentation and bitter weeping. Rachel is weeping for her children. She refuses to be comforted for her children because they are no more. And in case you're wondering where you might have heard that, this is a text that gets replayed in the Gospels. The book of Matthew starts to tell you the genealogy of Jesus and tells you the slaughter of the innocents, where King Herod goes to Bethlehem and kills all the baby boys age 2 and under. Remember this story. A repeat of the Moses executions when Moses floats down the river in an ark of bulrushes and Pharaoh kills all the baby boys to try to kill the Redeemer. This is the attack of darkness against God's redemptive plan. So try to stop the Redeemer. You can't stop the Redeemer. And so Herod repeats that and tries to kill all the baby boys. And the Bible says that Rachel mourns for her children. When the writer, when Matthew writes that, he's just picking you, he's putting the audience into Jeremiah 31. Matthew's picking his audience up and dropping them into a prophetic chapter of how God transforms wildernesses. He does that on purpose so that the audience that knows their Old Testament will go, even though Herod's trying to kill the babies, this can't be the end of the story. Because in the text where Rachel was weeping over her children, God had deposited grace into the wilderness. So whatever Herod's trying to do, God's a step ahead of him. I love moments like that. It's where you know the author is pulling old material back or taking new material and dropping it in and going, watch how God fulfills this. So as the chapter progresses, we, here's Jesus. The weeping at Ramah is the birth of Christ. It's Christ in the middle of a wilderness. It's God steps into your terrible wilderness, your thorn-laden garden, full of rocks, no good produce, and God deposits Himself in it. In the form of Christ, grace in your wilderness. Jesus is grace in our wilderness. And from there, we get down to verse 27. Again, look at all the individual verses on your time, but I want to show you the highlights. The days are surely coming, says the Lord, when I will sow... I don't know what all your translations... I'm reading NRSV tonight. Does everybody have something close to sow? S-O-W right there? Whatever translation you're using? Okay, good. Good. Because it nails the heartbeat of this. What's sowing mean? Planting. Okay, here's here's our wilderness. Here's our Jesus. What's God going to do? The time's going to come when I'm going to plant. I'm going to sow the house of Israel and the house of Judah with the seed of humans and the seed of animals. That's an odd statement. Ezekiel uses something very similar at one of his blessing prayers, and he he tells Israel that God's going to sow enough animals in them so they'll have stuff to eat, that God's going to actually bring animals. So this is kind of Isaiah's way of saying God is going to bless you with all the sustenance you need in this moment, in this place. And just as I've watched over them to pluck up and break down, to overthrow, destroy, and bring evil, so I will watch over them to build And to plant, says the Lord. I know I'm moving slowly, but I just want you to catch these. God says, I've watched over them through all of this stuff. But what I'm going to reveal myself to them as is a builder and a planter. I'm stepping into their wilderness. I'm depositing grace so that I can build and plant something with the people of God. 29, and in those days they shall no longer say, the parents have eaten sour grapes and the children's teeth are set on edge, but all shall die for their own sins. The teeth of everyone who eats sour grapes shall be set on edge. And this is an old proverb. Here's Isaiah and Ezekiel agreeing again. Ezekiel uses the same story. There was an old proverb in Israel that said, the children, if the children eat sour grapes, if the fathers eat sour grapes, sorry, their son's teeth hurt. He's like sting something. Imagine tasting something sour and you're, you get that, ugh, you know, that burn in the back of your jaw or whatever. Or if you don't like sour, you just spit it out. Right? Okay. Imagine that you eat it and your kid's mouth hurts. Okay. That's just a meta. That's an allegory for you do something that affects your next generation. Now Israel was living under that. That was their idea of sin and God. Their idea was if Larry does something wrong, John and Jeremy's going to pay the price. And that God's going to do it to John and Jeremy as a way of motivating Larry to clean up his act. Why? Because we don't want bad stuff happen to our kids. So they developed this idea that what God will do to keep you in line is threaten your kids through your sin. By the way, that's not what God's wanting to do at all. That's this revelation. But our ideas of God and who God is are sometimes two disparate things. Let me say that again. I hope you realize this. Our idea of God and what God actually is are oftentimes two entirely different things. If you don't believe that, look at Jesus. Show us the Father. How long do I got to be with you before you realize if you've seen me, you've seen the Father? Well, we aren't picking up on it. That's not the God we think you are. Well, that's on you. I'm the way, I'm the truth. I'm the life. No man's going to find fathers. father if they don't find him through me. So that's Jesus talking. Let's go, your ideas of the father and who the father is, two totally disparate ideas. So Israel has this idea, if we do something wrong, God's going to punish our kids. And God steps in and goes, the days are coming. I'm going to sow myself into Israel so much that they're going to realize that they are not responsible for the sins of other people. All right? This is a big step up, by the way, in theology. We're not all the way there yet. I told you this is a progression gardens don't grow overnight right we just now we have grace in our wilderness Jesus come along now we're sowing one of the first things is gonna happen when this seed hits the ground because I'm gonna start getting rid of bad ideas some of your ideas about my father thorns I'm gonna yank those things up stony ground we're gonna clear the path it's slow but we're gonna clear that path and then what verse 31 the days are surely coming, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. It will not be like the covenant I made with their ancestors, and I took them by the hand to bring them up out of the land of covenant of Egypt, sorry, a covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, says the Lord. They cheated on me. I didn't cheat on them. I was the husband. They, weren't, they didn't do very good as a wife. This is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. I will put my law within them. I will write it on their hearts. I'll be their God. They'll be my people. No longer shall they teach one another or say to each other, know the Lord, for they shall all know me from the least to the greatest. I will forgive their iniquity. I will remember their sin no more. Does this look familiar? This ought to look super familiar. This is Hebrews 8, man. Hebrews chapter 8, the author of Hebrews goes, okay, as Jeremiah wrote... There's a day coming when he's going to give a new cup. And then the author of Hebrews is bold enough to say, you're in it. And the old one is passing away and the new one is going to be all that's left. And then he, he, he you talk about double down. He goes, there's no more sacrifice for sin. Christ died for all sins once for all because the blood of bulls and goats wasn't working. But the blood of Jesus works for all time. That's the whole message of Hebrews. Do you know why I spent five minutes at the beginning of this message trying to get you to identify Israel from a New Covenant perspective, New Testament perspective. Because if you don't do that, what's your covenant? Well, we don't have one. We don't need one. We're outside of it. You've been sown into by Jesus. Christ alive in you, the mystery, Paul said, that has been concealed until now. Christ in you, the hope of glory. He said, Who's it revealed to us by? Through the Gentiles. He goes, Jesus is living in Gentiles. If Christ is living in Gentiles, then the new covenant is part of our existence, part of our experience. Okay, so what's happened? Grace in the wilderness. What's it look like? Rachel's crying. Why is she crying? Because here's Jesus. What's Jesus come along to do? I'm going to change your ideas about my father. Stop, stop coming up with your stupid little uh, allegories. You, you do this, your kids suffer. He goes, get rid of those. Those days are gone. We're going to pull those weeds out of the garden. He goes, not only am I going to plant something there, I'm going to put you into a new covenant. A new covenant because I'm going to rebuild. We're going to do something. And that leads us to this. And guys, all of that <laughs> was for this. Because this is the end of Jeremiah 31, verse 38. The days are surely coming, says the Lord. Before you read on, let me ask you a question. Just this is rhetorical. How many of you believe when the Bible says the days are coming, when you'll no longer be able to say, "The fathers eat the grapes and the sour, the children's teeth are set on edge," and God goes, "The days are coming, you won't be able to say that anymore." How many of you believe you're in those days when you shouldn't say that anymore? Shouldn't, shouldn't. I agree. I think we're in those days. Stop blaming God. Right? We're in those days. How many of you believe that you are in those days? When God's made a new covenant and that you're a part of it. Okay. I set you up. I hope you know that. Because three times in Jeremiah 31, he goes, The days are coming, the days are coming, the days are coming. And you admitted you're in the first two. Look at the third set. The days are surely coming, says the Lord, when the city shall be rebuilt for the Lord from the tower of Hananil to the corner gate. And the measuring line shall go out farther, straight to the hill Gerib, and shall then turn to Goa, the whole valley of the dead bodies and the ashes and all the fields as far as the Wadi Kidron, to the corner of the horse gate toward the east, shall be sacred to the Lord. It shall never again be uprooted or overthrown. I was just in Israel in March. I stood at the edge of the old city wall on what was the old western side of the city of Jerusalem. And shaped like an L, the city is here, and shaped like an L is a valley that runs about halfway down the western side of Jerusalem and takes a sharp turn and then runs all along the south side of Jerusalem. And when it gets to the far southeast corner of Jerusalem, it hits the the, the Wadi Kidron, the creek that runs through Kidron, and then it opens up into what's called the Kidron Valley on the eastern side of Jerusalem. And on the other side of the Kidron Valley is the Garden of Gethsemane, and right up the road is Bethany. And that L-shaped valley that runs all along the western and southern side of Jerusalem all the way from the time of David, all the way up through the time of Christ, was uninhabited and uninhabitable. Because in the Old Testament, it was called the Vale of Hinnom, the Valley of Hinnom. And in the New Testament, it was called Gehenna. And in about the 17th century, when we started translating the Bible from Greek to English, we borrowed a word from the Norse, the Norway gods. And started calling it hell. And by the Middle Ages, we transposed onto that four-letter word a lot of stuff that we borrowed from Dante's Inferno and the circles of hell and all of the things that have now become the motif. But in the time of Christ, it was a valley called Gehenna. And in Gehenna, they buried the bodies of those who had no family to bury them inside the walls. They also buried the bodies of strangers and the poor, those who no one could claim. And the valley of Hinnom was also the trash dump of first century Jerusalem. And in that dump, the fire would burn day and night. The flames would never go out. And the worms would eat the bodies of the dead and of the refuge and the waste to the point that the phrase, the fire never dies and the worm dieth not, became synonymous with the valley of Gehenna or the Vale of Hinnom. I want to reread for you verse 40. The whole valley of the dead bodies and the ashes and all the fields as far as the Wadi or the river Kidron to the corner of the horse gate toward the east shall be sacred to the Lord. It shall never again be uprooted or overthrown. There is no more wasteland in Christ. And Jeremiah grabs the thing that he knows everybody will find familiar, that stinking, burning, smoking trash heap outside the walls of the old city. And he goes, the day is coming. The day is surely coming when the Lord will rebuild a city, a glorious city. And He won't just stop at the edge of the old walls He'll clean out the place of the dead. He'll clean out the trash. He'll clear the rocks. You'll never be able to uproot his garden. He uses the phrase uproot. Whatever he sowed back in 27, you can't pull out of the ground by the time you get to the end of the chapter. Jeremiah 31 is the rebuilding of a glorious garden. It's Eden reimagined. It's Christ, the man of grace, putting himself into the earth. You go, well, maybe it's supposed to be a literal city somewhere. That is us thinking like the Pharisees and the Sadducees of Jesus' day with all due respect to our moralities and our religiosity, please. In John 2, Jesus is staring at the temple and he says, tear this down. And in three days, I'll rebuild it. And they said, that's blasphemy. How are you going to rebuild the temple in three days? And no one got it because we all miss the power of the kingdom of God. And John the writer jumps in there with words in black and goes, he was speaking of his own body. And it was Jesus saying, knock all the old structures down. You don't need them anymore. I'm going to rebuild a new house. I'm going to rebuild a new Jerusalem. In the image of my father, grace in your wilderness. No more of the dead. No more of the trash. I'm going to clean it all up. I'm going to create a city. And don't worry, we're not that unusual if we don't get it. They didn't get it in his day when he talks to the two on the road to Emmaus. And they say to him in Luke 24, we thought he was the one who was going to redeem Israel. There's that whole, ah. Was he the one? Yeah. Why'd they miss it? Because for them, redemption wasn't what it was for God. And I think that's still happening to us. Because we're going, oh, God hasn't done that yet. He's not going to do that until he tears this thing down, rebuilds that thing. And Jesus is going, I've already done all of that in my resurrection. Now, I'm reforming the world into the image of the Father. And the arm that he uses is the church of Jesus Christ. He doesn't use the arm of government. He doesn't use the arm of men, the arm of intelligence, the arm of money. All of these things play a part and contribute. Sure, they're not the kingdom of God. They can contribute to good things. How many of you know they can contribute to bad things? Governments, money, religion, (laughs) Good things can happen out of them. Bad things can happen. The kingdom of God doesn't rely on any of those things. Our our republic in this great nation may not make it. I hope that it makes it. But it might not make it. It's not destined to make it. You know what's destined to make it? The house that God builds. The kingdom that Jesus establishes is destined to stand. I hope that good things stand in the secular kingdoms of the world and i hope the terrible falls why would you hope any less but i don't place my confidence or my faith in the good of the kingdoms of man not when i have grace in the wilderness all of this wilderness grace jesus deposited into who we are and you're part of it in first in first corinthians 3 16 paul says you Are God's temple if indeed the Spirit of God dwells in you? How many of you believe the Spirit of God dwells in you? You are the temple. God is not dissatisfied with you, can't wait to move you out so He can build a new temple. He's already got a temple. Jesus has been building His church for 2,000 years. Is He doing a good job? I wouldn't dare say no either. We don't do a good job sometimes. He's doing a great job. (laughs) We mess it up a lot of times. He's doing a spectacular job building His church. In 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 4 and 5, Peter said, You are living stones being built up into a spiritual house. What was he talking about? You're part of this process that rebuilds the city of God. Jesus said, You are a city set on a hill cannot be hid. Revelation closes with a city whose gates never shut, a city whose leaves are for the healing of the nations, a city where a river comes straight out of the center of it. And goes out into a wilderness because wherever God sets his foot becomes a glorious garden we do not prove this by pointing out the ways in which the world is getting better that's a fool's errand because you'll always find someone's world that's getting worse we do not prove that the kingdom wins because this or that or the other you don't need to prove Jesus You just need to believe on him. Christianity is not a religion of intellect where I have to figure out the historicity of the the physical Jesus or I have to prove if you can find Noah's Ark on Ararat somewhere. Christianity is faith in a resurrected Christ. Here's the really good news. If Jesus resurrected, it's all going to be okay. I don't ever want you to forget this. If the resurrection is real, it's all going to be okay. Why? Because it means death isn't the end. And God stepped across the veil to the other side and said, come on, you're going to be all right. I don't mean your individual situations will work out, but this is all going to be all right. Why? Why? I'm so glad you asked. This is a good place to close. Go with me to Psalm chapter 84, and we'll shut it down. Psalm chapter 84, verse 5. Happy are those whose strength is in you, in whose heart are the highways to Zion. Oh, I love that phrase. Happy are people whose, in their heart, are the highway to a new city. My heart. You know what's happening in me? I, I really feel like the Lord is opening a highway in my heart towards a brand new city. And I don't mean that in geographic terms, but a new dwelling place. I have garden motifs and city motifs and highway motifs, but happy are those who in their heart, their heart leads on a highway to a new city. Here's the thing about highways to cities. Highways don't just birth themselves. We know this because I've been driving over here to Chapin for about four years. And there's a highway out here that I can tell you, if it's birthing itself, they need a new midwife. Because <laughs> I've been hitting different exits and traffic jams and all kinds of junk, and you guys live with it all the time, and I'm going, is somebody going to finish this road ever one of these days? So I think it will happen. It's good. I have faith it will happen. It, they don't birth themselves. They're constructed, right? They're built. Those highways are built. Okay. To build them, you got to have a path and you got to sometimes clear out a wilderness, bridge a bridge river. you got to knock some rocks out of the way. you got to smooth out the road. The point is, is that there's going to be birth pains on the highway to a city. Okay, keep that in mind. As they go through the valley of Baca, they make it a place of springs. The early rain also covers it with pools. They go from strength to strength. The God of gods will be seen in Zion. We'll go back to 6. As they go through the valley of Baca, they make it into a well. What happens when they get in Baca? Baca's rough, so they go down and they dig a well because you've got to survive when you're building that highway to the city. Okay, here's your boring Bible study. ready? <laughs> About 150 years before Christ, 70 Hebrew scholars sat in a room, Greek and Hebrew scholars, and they translated the ancient Hebrew text into Greek about 150 years before Christ. Because there were 70 of them, it was given a numerical code, Roman Roman numerals LXX, (coughs) also known as 70, and the word that was given to describe the text was derived from the Greek word for 70, and we call those collection of Old Testament books Septuagint. Okay, Septuagint are the, what we would refer to as the Old Testament, but really it's the Hebrew Bible, because the Hebrew Bible and the Old Testament are two different things, if you've ever studied those two. But for purposes of my boring Bible study, they took the Old Testament, and they took it from Hebrew, and they translated it into the common language of the day. The language was Greek. Okay, Why that's vital is because what they were doing they were listening to the sound of the Spirit going, what do these words mean to a modern audience 150 years before Christ? And when they got to Psalms chapter 84, verse 6, as they go through the valley of Bacca, by the way, your translations are from Hebrew, which is why it uses the old word Bacca. But when the writers of the Septuagint got a hold of the word Bacca, they translated it Gehenna. The Septuagint says... Blessed are the ones who go through the valley of Gehenna and turn it into a well. And everyone reading that 100 years before Christ lifts their nose and their eye to the stinky valley outside of Jerusalem and says, who would dare drink the water out of that well? Guys, Psalms 84 is bold. It is saying happy is the man who's got a highway in his heart going towards the city, not even hell can stop that man. Because if he goes into the valley of Gehenna, he'll just dig till he finds water. That's how confident he is that he's in the place he's supposed to be. You know what that sounds like to me? Grace in the wilderness. Drop into the middle of the wilderness. What happens? We're going to dig right here. Something's coming out of this. Now, I don't know about you, but that whole thing, that just excites my soul. Because I'll be honest with you, I don't even know all the implications of it. I'm not even going to try to give you all the theological landing spots, but what it says to me is there is no wilderness that grace doesn't enter with you and that grace doesn't walk you through. I don't care how bleak it looks, how bad it looks, how awful it looks. Stop whining, stop crying, and stop asking God to get you out of it. Start digging. It's not blessed as a man that goes into Gehenna and then figures out how to run out. It's not blessed is the church that sets in the Gehenna and praise God takes them away. It's wherever you are, make the difference there. That's Jesus. You want to bring a woman caught in the act of adultery to Jesus? He doesn't suddenly need a lunch break. It's time to deal with the woman. And by dealing with the woman, you got to get those people to drop their rocks. You got to put your whole neck on the line. Neither do I condemn you. Go and send them more. That's not the right answer. That's digging a well in the middle of hell. I'm going to find something great in the middle of disaster, in the middle of the worst moment in her life. We're going to find something great. That's grace sown in the wilderness. That's all he's asking of us. That's all he's asking of us. Someone asks, What's it cost to get saved? My answer is, What do you got? That's the perfect amount. What's it cost to follow Jesus? What do you got? Well, I got a lot. Oh, well then you better get some trailers because you're going to follow Jesus. It all goes to him. Well, I don't have much. Oh, wonderful. That's exactly what he was asking for. Someone without much. So you can bring that too. I, I'm not talking money anymore. I'm talking me. I'm talking you. He goes, you want to follow me? Yeah, I want to follow you. Come on, let's go. But um, what, what happens if we go through hell? That's what, we're going to go through hell. We're going to go through wildernesses. That's part of this journey. Blessed is the man that goes through that and makes it a well. Guys, I could go on all night on this, all right? I'm not going to. I'm going to stop right there. I promised you we'd land in Psalm 84. We landed. It was a hard landing. Someone once, a pilot once told me every landing is basically just a controlled crash. So we just controlled crashed this baby right down the runway. Wheels flying off, sparks flying, but hey, grace in the wilderness, right? Let's pray. And let's pray. I've been doing this to you a lot, I know. But let's pray not just for this house tonight, but for those who are in the wilderness. They're lost. And I'm not talking about their souls lost. I mean, they're not hearing what they need to hear from God right now. They're not in that space they think they need to be. They're questioning whether they took a left turn when they should have took a right. This is the kind of word that says to them, wherever you are, grace is going to find you in your wilderness. And maybe God giving you the direction where you're supposed to dig. And maybe God showing you how long you're supposed to camp there but you are moving through. And and I'm just believing that there's a highway being birthed in some people's hearts towards Zion. Father, thank you. Thank you for this word. It has knocked me sideways with with joy and excitement and and a highway is springing up. And the highways don't, they don't just pave themselves and they don't, always go around everything sometimes they've got to slow down and dig a well and i know that there's somebody watching listening and there may be even people in this room They got their own wilderness they got their own hell they got their own gehenna stuff stinks it's burning and it's dying the worm dies not and they're struggling but father i believe that you have done a work and are doing a work in our lives to show us grace in the wilderness Father, we're trusting you for it and we're believing you for it now more than ever in Jesus' name. Amen.